In England during Shakespeare's time, men played women on stage. But by 1661, women did. What happened? To hear some people tell it, the first place to look for an answer is Italy. From the Fulcher Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Fulcher Director. As we've shared on previous podcasts, there were certainly women performers in Elizabethan England, but not on Shakespeare's stage or any of the other mainstream public stages at the time. According to Dr. Pamela Allen Brown of the University of Connecticut, the first nick in that armor may have appeared in the 1570s. That's when bands of Commedia dell'arte performers first set foot in London. The troops featured something most English people hadn't seen at that point, the Davina, a woman who played the inamorata role, the leading character in what today we'd call romantic comedies. English diplomats had seen the women who played these parts, women who later would be called divas, but in the 1570s, divas started coming to England. As Professor Brown says, their presence began to change attitudes on what theater could be, on what topics plays should be about, and, maybe most importantly, about what kinds of people could play female roles. Dr. Brown's new book is called The Diva's Gift to the Shakespearean Stage. The gifts she enumerates are ones you'll recognize, ones that might cause you to understand English theater in an entirely new way. Professor Brown came into a studio to explain some of this for us in a podcast that we call I Shall See Some Squeaking Cleopatra, Boy My Greatness. Dr. Pamela Brown is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I'd like to start with this term diva, if we can, because in modern times we think of it as meaning a big demanding celebrity or a big ego or just an opera star, I guess. But its original meaning, it sounds like, was uh, very different. So why don't you define it for us and maybe run through the types or the specialized roles that it encompassed in early Italian theater? Um, it's really a contraction from Divina. And so in the time in the 16th century, diva was not in use yet except as an ad- a Latin adjective. So that would be Elisabetta Diva, the Elizabeth the Diva, uh, Divine Elizabeth. So it's an adjective. So it, it, it sort of morphs into the usage we know as a noun, um, really when opera gets really going. But I'm, I'm using it, I'm really appropriating it and using it because it's such a well-known, extremely ambivalent term. A diva we know as usually pejorative today, and I'm saying that, no, there was a prehistory of this extreme fame, the, a star who was a prodigy and who was considered quasi-divine. Yeah, so there's so many layers to diva, and divas yes. also encompassed certain roles in Italian drama. Could you run them down for us in Shakespeare's mm-hmm. time? The, the diva, I would say the diva is the person, the diva is the actual actress, and that some roles are written in the style of the diva. The best way to put it is that the enamorata role, the woman in love, as played by the great diva, the stars of the Italian troops, those were the diva roles. If you were playing, for example, Lelia in Ingenati, or you're playing uh, Medea, the ways in which they made those roles their own, even rewriting the, the tragic roles and the comic roles and adapting them to their 
let's say, their their starring and stellar capacities like singing or going mad, those were the diva roles. In other words, it wasn't that, okay, when we think about Shakespeare, we have a particular role like Juliet or Cleopatra or Beatrice or Portia that I'm calling a diva role. In the Italian drama, it was what did the divas play? And that's a little different because they created their own dramas. They wrote, they adapted, they shaped. And so they took written drama and they they included um, improvisation and writing together. Sometimes they wrote their own parts. So when I'm naming these great tragic roles and this great comic role like Lelia, right, in Ingenati, which is a predecessor for Twelfth Night and Viola, it is the diva who brought the divaness to the role. So I'm trying to bring in the the performance aspect rather than the all the scripted part of those roles. And it's really wild how early this was happening. I think you identify the first known professional female stage star or diva in Italian drama, and, and you date it to her to... First of all, who was she? And and I think you date her to what, 1564 60s, or Yes. Uh, well, there's both Barbara Flaminia and Vincenza Armani. So they put on a variety of co- plays, like pastorals, comedies, tragic comedies, and they attempted to get each one, create a fan club for themselves. And so the divas, as soon as they appeared, as soon as women appeared playing roles, all kinds of roles in Italian professional troops, divas quickly appeared who were the leaders of, uh, who were the prima donnas of the company. Wow. You might have three or four women, but only one would emerge as the prima donna. So that's wild. And and I want to get to Shakespeare soon, but I have to ask you, why was the Catholic Church in Italy okay with, with women performing <laughs> on stage and, and, and well, leading they these companies? Pro- they weren't all uh, happy and, and okay with it. Um, they had a lot of opposition, but the I think that the 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 key thing to recognize is that they quickly gained powerful patrons. So if you have the Duke of Mantua, if you have the you know the Medici behind you, you also um, bring pressure to bear on the Catholic Church and who are connected and also have Gonzaga. And, you know they're all connected by family, right? So it's not so clear as and that that the church mm-hmm. is anti theatrical or anti actress. In some places, especially Rome and the the, the Vatican um, territories, they are forbidden. But yet there are still private performances for cardinals who bring in actresses into Rome, and there's accounts of that. So you see it's, you know, their their stardom is, is making them quite powerful and their connections quite early on. Well, you write about one who sounds really interesting, Isabella Andreini. Andreini? Mm-hmm. Andreini. <laughs> yes. And she was called the greatest actress of the Renaissance? She sounds amazing. She died young, but she still somehow had time to have seven kids. Absolutely. I know. And to perform um, for, you know, for years pregnant, you know, think about that, and then stop, have the child, go back on the stage. She was truly a prodigy. Other divas, like her main rival, Vittoria Pissimi, uh, had huge followings and were great stars before her, but she managed to um, displace her. It's pretty clear that she displaced her in the Jalosi troupe, the famous troupe she was in. She was a singer, a writer, a poet, and um, an intellectual, and she managed to create a persona that was sort of purified and chaste and above the the dirty connotation of the whorishness of the stage. 
Um, she had a she had a much older husband, Francesco, and they played on stage opposite each other. He played the Capitano first, the lover. Then when he got too old, the Capitano, and they had many many uh, scenes together, many plays together, and so they led their troupe. So it's a very interesting thing, you know, to think that they could protect their reputations by being married and traveling together. So that was one of the main complaints about the actresses that they were whores because they traveled with men. Um, and so marriage was a way of protecting their reputation. Huh. Now, uh, maybe I'm making too big a deal of this, but it seems as if before women were on the stage, uh, men were playing women's parts and everybody was masked. So it must have been a huge switch when women actors came on the scene and the masks came off because then the audience could That's see right. facial expressions of everyone. I mean, Absolutely. so much more theater must have – it must have been a revolution in theater. It Yes, you put your finger on it because we, it's hard for us to imagine a a mix of masked and unmasked, but that is what they did. So you're going to have the pantalone, arlecchino, the capitano will have masks, half masks, or or maybe a little bigger than half masks, whereas the lovers are called the serious roles and they have no mask and they can show all those emotions, that wonderful range. The, you know the passion, ah. the pathos, uh-huh. and so that of course brings a lot. That that allows you to do a lot of different kinds of drama and expand your generic range into pastoral, tragicomedy even, and then eventually into tragedy. Okay, so women in Italian theater. All of this is going on in Italian theater. How did English playwrights and also audiences first either hear about or experience Italian actresses performing all these parts? I think it's the French connection. Is France is the key. You know, there was a lot of competition between Elizabeth's court and the Catherine Medici. The she was really the the cultural leader of the Valois, Valois court. And so, when the the Commedia dell'arte actors and the best troops became favorites at the French court, the English ambassadors and diplomats would see them perform and send word back to Elizabeth, and she quickly brought. Italians to her court. She wasn't going to be bested. This is my theory. So she then, um, and she always was very italophilic. She spoke Italian fluently. That was her favorite of all the languages she knew and spoke. And she played favorites of people who could speak Italian and, and were Italianated at her court. So when you brought the Italian, you know, here you're bringing the Italian actors to England, that's a very important uh, moment in the mid-70s, 1570s. But I think the first way they heard about them was via these reports from France and some from Italy because they traveled constantly, the, the Italians. Okay, so Elizabeth was primed to love Italian theater, and and this, as you say, what's happening in the seventies. I love how your your mind thinks of the seventies as the fifteen seventies, fifteen seventies. But you also so so these troops started coming, and you write about uh, one troop in particular, the Martinelli troop coming to England. Right. Why was mm-hmm. the Martinelli trip troop so significant? There are actually two troops, one that where we have um, records that are showing women in the troop. We have uh, there are more records of Italians coming, Italian actors yeah. um, coming in small small groups and larger groups. but the but the very important thing is that the large troops will have the range of genres. They'll offer a variety of plays, and they have women. So the Martinelli troupe has the longest stay, which is in 1577-78, a 10-month stay, which is accounted for as documented. And they have a license to appear in, it's called In London and the Liberties. 
which, uh, you know, that, that's exactly when the theaters are opening in the Liberties. So that's, and in London. So that's a very key moment for the uptake of any foreign uh, drama that you're having in London. It also sounds pretty spicy. Um, the one of the divas, <laughs> or there was a diva in the troupe, it was uh, Angelica Martinelli. The, the Angelica, wife, right. The, the wife. La Madonna Angelica, right. The well, wife of, of the leader. Yeah. Of the leader. So she's married, but she was having an affair, allegedly, with the company's patron, the Duke of Mantua. This is like hot tea from the 1570s. <laughs> and yeah. the, the troupe advertised this scandal. It sounds like it used it as a marketing draw to get right. people to buy tickets in the guise of all publicity is good publicity, right, even then? Yeah. Um, they took a very different route than Isabella and Francesco and the Gelosi, who took the high road, right? So well, This is pretty low. Nelly, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, there's a kind of, I think that there's a, a scandalous aspect to the actress being on stage that was always present, that was a draw, that was not something to be denied, but which was to be used. I, I was also thinking maybe it's the idea that the English thought badly of Italians anyway, <laughs> right? And that Italian theater is low and vulgar, so yeah, um, it's playing, playing that up. Is that how they thought? The English audiences um, thought of Italian theater? I think that at this point, there is a fear, Sophie Tomlinson calls it the threat of the actress. It's not only about gender, not only about we have an all-male stage and these actresses are threatening it. There's, there's something to the idea that the Italians are the leaders in theater, period. And so we have to catch up. And the way that we're doing it is we actually um, adapt, steal, um, <laughs> you know, we take everything from the Italians and then we claim it's ours. Or that we say, yes, we got a few plots, but basically the Italians are just whores and zanies, and so we're not learning anything from them as theatrical professionals. We're only taking uh, some text, some stories, and then we make them into genius. I really think that they were actually quite fearsomely superior, in, and they had uh, the first professional troops before Eng the English ever did. And their drama and their literature was what was to be admired and attempt to rise to. See, so I, I don't think it was exactly, there's a lot of envy there. I want to dig into the women performing on stage aspect of this, though, because I, I know from our other guests that we've had on the podcast that women were performing in the streets of London as acrobats Correct. and rope walkers and the like. And it just wasn't unheard of for women to be entertainers. So when English audiences saw women acting in these productions, how did they react? Was it no big deal? I think it's there's a question of level of theater and where you are claiming um, a more elite or at least exclusive status, like the all-male stage, the professional stage, is part of its claim to quality is that, you know, we don't use women and that th that female performance out there is unprofessional. They are perish, uh, they're, they're doing jigs. Uh, Right. So that when the four and this is this is uh, I'm saying more local. When I say local, I mean non-foreign. I mean English performance. So when these foreigners came, and they were so dramatic and glamorous and um, spectacular, and the Queen is hiring them and paying them and displacing English playwrights and players, there has to be a, the reaction is um, sometimes very hostile and negative. Um, and so the idea that they're just whores is then, you know, it, it is a 
pushback, whereas other people go to a defensive move. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, defensive move, but but also that others go to Europe and and come back with very positive or more neutral reports about the actress. Okay, so we're we're now up to Shakespeare and Marlowe seeing these Italian comedies and tra- tragedies and and many of which featured this female role known as the enamorata, the or a lover mm-hmm. who sometimes mm-hmm. often takes the guise of a man to woo a woman. So is that why so many of Shakespeare's comedies feature this plot line? Um I think the root reason is that the audiences wanted Italian comedies and Italian comedies are about love. You know, so I want you have to kind of take it a step earlier. When the theaters opened, they could not just continue with the material they had. There was a really sort of desperate uh, need for more plays. And where they turn to is Italy. Um, the plot lines, the characters, so many came from Italian sources, but they also came from Italian theater and theater professionals. So when you make a love story, it's composed of scenes. So my my take on it and my analysis is that what you do is you put together just like a Lego, a story. And so you, you, you don't necessarily take the entire play and just uh, translate it. They took different pieces of different plays and especially scenes. And so for lovers or for a love plot, you might take all kinds of different things, a disguised scene, a mad scene, a a lament scene, a, a woman fighting with her father. And these would be put together in different shapes. But a lot of that material was lifted from the Italians. And that explains why you write that the love story was moved to the center of the plot in the dramas that these troops uh, created. This was the effect of the Italian theater on on English theater, which makes me ask, wonder what had English plays or playwrights focused on before? Before <laughs> the, what were they? Um, there's, what was there, the focal point? Yeah, it was very, there were, um, there were sort of uh, there were moralities that were uh, in which the the female roles especially were virtues or vices of various sorts, and there were romances that were sort of uh, rumbustious. You don't know if you remember like Shakespeare in Love. There was Ethel the Pirate's Daughter. This kind of play in which <laughs> right. this is really much more of what they were like, where it would not be kind of the what we consider to be romantic comedy. That was not what they were. They were heavy it was on more spectacle. spectacle. Spectacle? Yeah, dragons yeah. and mm-hmm. yes, and 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 sword fights and uh, big women, speeches. You know, yeah, and, and women who had to be saved from you know monsters, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and also moralistic or also yeah. heavily moralized and symbolic. So you you didn't have, you know, the Italians truly brought a new focus on character as governed by passions. And that is, I think I can stick with that. And I think that's very important when we think about, you know, just think of Marlowe, Shakespeare, Webster, and especially the woman of passion. Well, let's hone in on the impact all of this had on on two of Shakespeare's Italian adjacent plays, Romeo and Juliet and Much Ado About Nothing. So mm-hmm. looking at Romeo and Juliet, is Juliet just a clear diva type then, and enamorata? I think so. And I think this is probably the toughest case I have in my book. I mean, if the the Juliet chapter, I think that case is the hardest case to make because most people think of her as an innocent, innocent 
uh, young girl who is carried away by passion, and that's her role. She is a diva type who is a prodigy diva, and that makes her truly unique because um, the Italian actresses, I don't think any had achieved their status of being an international star by 13, you know, but she becomes this tragic heroine of very special stature, and the boy who plays her also has to rise to this. So what her divaness consists of is her intense poeticism, her androgyny, that one of the characteristics of the um, Italian divas, the great actresses, is they had masculine and feminine qualities that they would flow in and out of. They were highly gender mobile. Um, Not only did they play in and out of various uh, disguises, their own characters were so dominant that they were often called virile. So we have this more than woman, and we certainly Juliet is dominant uh, in the relationship from the very start. She's the one who th- who, who she brings proposes. She, she proposes. She proposes. She's the poet, and her and she comes back and treats treats Romeo. It's clear that she's the better poet almost from the very beginning, mm. and then her great star scene gallop apace. It is so intensely literary. It is so intensely artificial in a good way. There's Ovid, there's Marlowe, there's all kinds of allusions, and it's woven together so beautifully, so artfully. That's one of the greatest soliloquies in all of English literature. So it's given to a 13-year-old girl. So what is more a diva than a prodigy who is, um, just like we say, a prodigy ballerina or a prodigy musician, right? She's a prodigy actress. And she knows that she has the status of, and she conceives of herself as an actress, because we know that when she um, has to take the poison, she says, this tragic scene I needs must act alone. And you have a feeling that she doesn't just need to do it, she wants to do it alone. She has the stage, and she's, she's the center stage, and she um, revels in that position. She gets to die twice. That's another thing divas always do. You think about Cleopatra, think about Desdemona. And so I just find her to be this marvelous child diva. Yes. Now, a very different character in Romeo and Juliet, the nurse. Now I'm mm-hmm. wondering, do her comic book bits, like like not answering any questions directly and drawing out scenes for comic effect and all that, are these also lifted from Italian theater or standard bits borrowed from Italian theater. Absolutely. This the, the nurse is a type but she's more, you know Shakespeare makes her more than this but it's still the back and forth thing between Juliet the back and forth between the nurse and uh, Mercutio. She is so uh, much from the Italian theater. Okay, running down my list then, uh, the very idea of battle between daughters and fathers. Also mm-hmm. straight from Italian Drama? Abs- absolutely. Um, absolutely. Okay, and so now I'm going to pile them all together because you are, you, if you don't know about the relationship between Italian theater and uh, Shakespeare, you'll watch Romeo and Juliet and say, they turn to suicide at the drop of a hat. It's crazy. <laughs> Yet that's right. also another Italian theater trope, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's played for comedies, but it can also be a very tragic moment. Uh, you know, with with mistaken deaths, etc. And Othello, that he he becomes immediately jealous for no reason. (laughs) Yes, and we see this in in Winter's Tale as well. 
So a lot of the things we think, oh, this is unmotivated, what is going on here, that there's a, a way of fitting these, as I said, these pieces together that are part of character type and character systems rather than uh, what we consider to be psychologically, you know, uh, consistent plotting. And now on to Beatrice of Messina and Much Ado. Uh, she's, she's not just Italian. She's Sicilian. So ha- tell us how we know that, first right. of all. Well, we tend to say Italy, Italian, we know what that means, but it was certainly not a unified state at all, and a Venetian is quite different from a Sicilian. And so at the time, they knew these distinctions. I mean, the English had had certainly had an idea of uh, northern and southern Italy, for example. So Sicily had the reputation of being extremely violent, volcanic. You know, they had volcanoes. It was a place um, uh, where where Hades was, where there were devils, demons, and monsters, and where things were quite primitive. And so I think we see that reflected in Much Ado, but um, in several ways, but specifically with Beatrice, she constantly (laughs) talks about eating people. She's cannibalistic. I mean, she says, you know, I promise to eat all of his killing. And then at the very end, she says, oh, that I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. I mean, how raw, how how bloody, how bloody-minded, right? But I think it's treated as light comedy in most productions, but I think it's meant to be intensely strange, foreign, and Sicilian. And I say that as a with a Sicilian mother, I'm I'm quite <laughs> the, Sicilian, the the cast of um, what what Sicilian means in that play. I think maybe hyper aware. Well, so stepping back now and looking at the big picture of these early mm-hmm. divas and the and this tradition in Italian theater, what is the big import or significance or impact uh, or the biggest one on the English playwrights? Not just Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that, you know, when you have a limited palette, you know, if you're an artist, you know, if you only have three three uh, octaves, for example, you can only do certain kind of music. And then if you if you double or triple the, the, the you know, your range there, it gives you so much more to work with. And it also... Uh, stimulates your imagination and it satisfies your audience with variety. The, and, and the variety and versatility is what the, the divas were all about. Um, so they the were Italian not, theater the, ramped it up to 11, you're saying, for the English. The Italian theater, right. You, you couldn't have, I mean, you think about the, um, the truly great, the canon of the, the, what's most taught and uh, studied today. I really think it would not be possible without the impact of these actresses who wrote who, who created, who expanded plays, who were able to carry it across borders, and who, were, and who showed that they had social power and were able to get patrons, were able to fight the church, and were able to make really good livings and to be, you know, uh, to be called divina, you know, <laughs> you know get poets writing poems about them. Um, I think this is a new um, kind of role for women in public. And it's a different kind of professional identity that had ever than had ever been available. And I think that that's fascinating, and it's it's very good stage material. I mean, how, what would the theater be without you know Lady Macbeth or uh, 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 White or uh, the Duchess of Malfi or White Devil or um, Cleopatra? I mean, it, it is you know it would be enormously impoverished 
And I think that none of those roles would have taken place, would have, would have been conceived without the model of the great divas. What a pleasure to talk with you. Really answered some long-standing questions for me. Thank you. Oh, I'm very, my pleasure, really. Thank you, Barbara. Pamela Allen Brown is a professor of English at the University of Connecticut at Stanford. Her previous books include Better a Shrew Than a Sheep, Women, Drama, and the Culture of Jest in Early Modern England, published by Cornell University Press in 2003, and Women Players in Early Modern England, Beyond the All-Male Stage, which she co-edited with Peter Parolin. That was published by Ashgate in 2005. Her new book, The Diva's Gift to the Shakespearean Stage, was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, I Shall See Some Squeaking Cleopatra, Boy My Greatness, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Josh Wilcox and Walter Nordquist at Brooklyn Podcasting Studio in Brooklyn, New York. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about The Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.